The Animation Podcast, August 19th, 2007. Go infinity! Go infinity! Go infinity! What's this? Go! Meet me! That's it! Jumbo! Go! Walk on the eyes of each man! Hey! Right on the button! <laughs> Don't let me fill it! <laughs> <laughs> Drawn that way. I'd like a word with you if you don't mind. You will join me for dinner. Oh, goody. Now it's like this, little britches. And beyond. Hey, everybody. This is Clay, and welcome to show number 20 of the Animation Podcast. This is a one part interview with Ray Harryhausen. Last year, Ray Harryhausen was at the Disney Animation Studios, and I went and I asked if I could meet with him for an interview sometime, and this was at lunchtime. And they said, sure, how about 1.30? And um, I kind of sweated for a little while, but I definitely said yes, because there was no way I was going to pass up this chance to uh, meet and talk with one of my heroes. He's definitely one of the reasons why I work in animation. I remember watching Clash of the Titans when I was a kid at the Village Theater in Orange, and then seeing it over and over again later on TV. Uh, My first animation ever was stop-motion animation. I did it with a video camera, and it was probably because it's the easiest concept of animation for a young kid to understand, and You know, you film a frame and then move the character and then film the next frame. And I knew all this because of Ray Harryhausen. For over 50 years, he single-handedly animated the most captivating creatures in movies, such as Mighty Joe Young, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, Jason the Argonauts, and of course, Clash of the Titans. He's an animation legend and inspiration to countless animators and filmmakers the world over. And it brings me great pleasure to share this interview with you. So first, a little audio to get you in the mood, and then on with the interview. In an ancient age, before recorded time, men were measured by their courage, and women by their beauty. Mighty gods ruled the universe, and fear and destruction covered the world. It was a time of darkness, when only the force of love could bring back the light. Now, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Clash of the Titans, a sweeping legend of a golden age, soon the motion picture epic of our time. Enter into the wondrous world of Perseus and Andromeda, a world of passion and power, beauty and bravery, mystery and magic, a world that transcends fantasy and leaps into legend. One courageous man rides between an angry heaven and the fury of hell on earth. He rides a winged stallion across the sky. He rides to save the one who owns his heart. He rides towards wonders no man has ever seen and terrors no man has ever faced. Clash of the Titans, starring Laurence Olivier, Maggie Smith, Ursula Andress, Burgess Meredith, Claire Bloom, and introducing Harry Hamlin as Perseus and Judy Bowker as Andromeda. It will touch you, shock you, dazzle your senses, and sweep you to the limits of your imagination. Clash of the Titans. When uh, I think I was eight years old, eight, I saw Clash of the Titans. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I had seen Star Wars, and I was a big Star Wars fan, but when I saw that movie, Clash of the Titans, it was so different to me, and, and it, it was so tangible. Um, 
Had you read Greek mythology before? No, no. I, you know, I, uh-huh. I hadn't seen any of it, and um, I, I can still remember it all. You know, the the owl and and uh, Calibus and Good. Medusa and, and the 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 kraken. It was it was just Greek it, mythology is almost forgotten today. I don't think they teach it in the schools anymore. No, I mean, but we tried to do it in a realistic way rather than like the the Italian epics that were just muscle man pictures and. And they uh, they never quite hit what uh, Greek mythology, at least to me, was all about when I grew up. Mm-hmm. They talk about the Cyclops, they talk about the the mythical creatures, but you never saw them on the screen. And uh, that always bothered me. I wanted to see these these creatures uh, the way they were described in the the wonderful illustrated books of my childhood. Maybe we should jump way back to the beginning uh-huh. and talk about uh, your childhood and when you first saw King Kong right. and, and how that affected you and what that meant to you. Well, my parents were great cinema goers, even in the silent days. I remember when I was age four, I saw The Lost World, I think it was, and Metropolis, that German film of Fritz Lang. And, uh, of course, the politics went right over my head, but... The images always remained in my mind. And, uh, of course, when I saw King Kong, that set me off. I started to investigate uh, what, how in the world did they do this because it wasn't a man in a suit, obviously, and you couldn't get men in dinosaur suits. So uh, I uh, investigated, and finally, after months of looking for information, I uh, arrived at... Uh, the whole concept of stop motion, which came out in a Look magazine. Was it a, a thorough article? Because I think it was a big article yeah. uh, of how there were many misleading articles of how Kong was made. Because there were no books on stop motion. There were no very few, very little information about it. And uh, uh, those who did know it, it was sort of a, a hidden problem, I guess, that you'd call for the film world. But uh, I investigated, and my dad had met a man who worked at RKO, and and he told us all about stop motion. And then when I was in steady period in high school, uh, at, during the steady period, I saw a girl across the room with a big book, and there were illustrations of Kong in that. And that got me... Uh, I thought, oh, my God. So I went over afterwards at the end of study period and introduced myself and told her of my uh, fascination with King Kong. And uh, she said her father worked with O'Brien at one time on Last Days of Pompeii and that he's at MGM making war eagles. She said, call him up, and uh, he'd be glad to talk to you. So it took me three or four days to muster courage but I finally called him up at MGM, and he kindly invited me down to the studio to see the preparations for War Eagles. And that was an awesome sight. He had three uh, large uh, office rooms bigger than this where every inch of the wall space was covered with drawings of this new film called War Eagles, uh, illustrations, pre-production illustrations, some in oil paintings, Others in charcoal and, and simple. Was drawings. this all his artwork? All, not all Obi's artwork, but he had three or four very uh, experienced illustrators 
doing the uh, artwork under his direction. And just so people know, it's Willis O'Brien. That was Willis O'Brien. Had you been doing any films before that, or was that your first just seeing well, how I'd it all experimented. worked? experimented. When I learned about stop motion, I was experimenting in my garage with an old 16-millimeter camera. and uh, So I had done a bit of experimentation with it. But it wasn't until after I'd worked, uh, when I got out of high school, I, uh, my first professional job was with George Powell Puppetoons. And I uh, animated most of his uh, films, the first 12 films that he made when he first came over from Europe. Uh, so uh, that was an experience that taught me at least patience. I wasn't too enamored with the technique because his technique was to pre-animate everything. He had 25 separate figures to, uh, of hips to take one step. 25. Oh, so you replaced every and piece? And then you replaced them where they had a, a registration pin. It was like an animated cartoon, only in dimension. Yeah. And, of course, his designs had to be very cubistic and simplistic because uh, they were cut out of wood and turned on a lathe, the heads. So they were very ultra-stylized, shall we say. But uh, we did several, a Western and, and a Hula Bula, I think it was, and, and several other films, Jasper and the Watermelons. And then I went into the Army, and uh, I got into the Special Service Division through making a film, which is on the DVD, by the way, of my early years, which Spark Hill Productions has put out. And that shows my early work, this bridge picture I made, which got me into the Special Service Division. And there you worked with uh, Frank Capra, right? That was uh, Capra. Frank Capra was the head of this Special Service Division. We made the Why We Fight series and the Snafu cartoons. Mm -hmm. Then I worked with Ted Geisel, uh, Dr. Seuss on uh, his early snafu cartoons. And uh, then uh, when I got out of the Army, I started, I wanted to, I didn't want to go back to George Powell. He wanted me to come back, but uh, I felt I'd be a clog in the wheel. And uh, so I, I uh, decided to try to do things on my own, and I made these fairy tales in my garage, which are still going. They're on this DVD disc called The Early Years. Uh, at this point, had you done a lot of art training? I mean, you had been animating and... Spasmodic. I, I yeah. learned mostly by uh, Doré and, and Willis O'Brien sketches. I used to copy those, and uh, 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 it was spasmodic. It wasn't... I went to night school and took up art, but it wasn't uh, a steady course that I could say you would get a, a, a degree in or anything like that. And did you find you enjoyed art, or was it a requirement to do what you wanted to do? Well, with it was the films? a necessity in a way because uh, I had to put my ideas on paper so other people could see them. And uh, I preferred to sculpt, I liked things in three dimensions. And I, I prefer to model rather than draw, but uh, I uh, learned to draw th with Gustave Doré was my mentor, and Willis O'Brien, and John Martin, and uh, many others, of course. Michelangelo was uh, my hero for uh, figure drawing, 
And um, it all finally, after many years, it didn't happen overnight. Why well, it all came together in the, the form of making feature films. Mm -hmm. And you also uh, had to develop uh, technical um, processes. Yes, because I couldn't meet it. I didn't meet anybody that was as interested in stop motion as I was. And uh, so I had to learn to do everything myself. If I wanted an armature, I had to build it myself. My first ones were of wood. I went to uh, some of the early ones. I'd made a brontosaurus, and I went to Pep Boys and got the rear-view mirror uh, ball and socket joints to use for the hips. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I did a lot of things until I learned how to, from my father, who was a machinist, uh, how to make the armatures on a lathe. And then I, metal ball and socket joints, of course, made my animation much smoother. So then after the war and after you worked on more fairy tales, um, that was when you worked on Mighty Joe Young? Is that right? I kept in touch with Willis O'Brien over the years, and during the war years. And, and he started uh, Mighty Joe Young around 1945, late 1945. So I became his assistant, sharpened his pencils, and we were working from his home for a while, and then finally we got offices at uh, the old Selznick studio down in Culver City. And did he, um, on that movie, did he animate most of it? And what, he how animated much did you... most of uh, King Kong. Yeah. He he did very little animation on Mighty Joe. I did about oh. ninety percent of it. Oh really? Yeah. Oh okay. So uh, he he left it in my hands, but I had had the great uh, honor of working with him in his preparation period, so I knew pretty well what was in his mind. And um, in that film, there's a lot of interaction on screen between the humans and yes. the, the ape. Was that a process that you had to develop, or was that something that was already well, in existence? Well, that was already designed by O'Brien. It was uh -huh. Willis O'Brien's film. I was his assistant. Uh -huh. But he relied on me to do the animation because it was very time-consuming. So I started in the basement sequence and shot all the background plates for the live action later to be used for rear projection. Uh -huh. And then uh, I started on the lion cage sequence, and... That well, took me three days, I think, and then they cut it up. It was about 300 feet in three days, and uh, they cut it up to put close-ups of the actors in here and there. But I think everything was about the first take. I seldom did retakes. And how... Uh, this is something that's always been difficult for me to get my head around is, you know, c because we plan it on paper and we can go back and redo it. And how did you plan animation? Especially for a character that's not human like you, like a lion or, or you know, mm -hmm. it's, I can't understand it. Well, it's <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's just something the way you, a person looks at things. I looked at things in a certain way that maybe somebody else looked at it a different way. So uh, most of it, uh, I know 90% of every feature film I've worked on is uh, the first take. I seldom had money or time to do a retake, where with computer animation and and uh, present-day frame grabbers, you can go over and over and refine it, refine it, but before you settle on it. But we, we, everything I did practically was a first take, mm -hmm. even on my puppet films. Mm -hmm. And did you? 
time it out on on paper like we would use an x sheet and say on this frame he's here and in no this frame. Uh, the fairy tales i i had a liberation because the music was all put in afterwards in the narration so i didn't have any lip sync or anything to worry about like that but when i went into feature films of course i i it was a different situation and of course i started i did six five fairy tales uh, for the uh, 16 millimeter market the the schools wanted a lot of uh, images uh, for mainly for schools and i made these fairy tales simple as possible i didn't want lip sync so i made it with a change of expressions with narration and uh, it was the first time i took on a story with a beginning middle and an end which i felt i needed to I just couldn't keep on experimenting with uh, uh, experiments that had no particular relativity to any story. Mm -hmm. So I started making, uh, devising the fairy tales, and then a friend of mine, Charlotte Knight, did help me with the narration, and I did these five fairy tales. And the sixth one I was working on, called The Tortoise and the Hare, uh, was started in 1952. And I shot a four minutes of uh, animation on it. And then I got tied up with features and never went back to it. So 50 years later, uh, Mark uh, Caballero and Seamus Walsh wrote me a letter and said they'd like to finish the film for me. And they studied all my early work and uh, made it in the same tradition. And yeah. they shot eight minutes of it. So... Uh, the Tortoise and the Hare is finally part of the six fairy tales, which are on my DVD. Yeah, I saw that at the Egyptian Theater. Yes, uh, and the Academy of ago. Motion Picture Arts and Science restored all my negatives mm-hmm. from 16 to that 35. That was a great show, and they really did a great job of matching. They did, I mean, yes. It's really hard to tell what's old and what's new. Yes. It's great. And it was a different film. Mm-hmm. I started out with commercial Kodachrome, and, of course, that no longer exists. But... Uh, the the labs matched it, and uh, uh, The Tortoise and the Hare is the longest, shortest film that's ever been made, I think. <laughs> longest film, not in production, it was in limbo. Fifty a, years. A great yeah. deal, yes. Um, there's something about animation. When when you a person watches animation, the character's there, and then there's a point where it moves and it becomes alive, yeah. and you stop thinking that it's a model or a drawing or whatever. In your animation, it happens so fast. Was there some approach you took to, I don't know, your characters just, they, they seem to snap to life within seconds of a scene starting. Well, it's the way you see things. You mm-hmm. know, somebody else would see things differently. But that's the way I saw it, and I uh, just did what I wanted. That's why I preferred to work alone. I didn't want to be watered down by anybody saying, oh, you should do it this way, or you should do it that way. Mm-hmm. So I prefer to work alone because it does take concentration, particularly if you have multiple heads and multiple figures, to keep track of what you've done, yeah. uh, particularly if the phone rings. You know. <laughs> and when you worked alone, did you have a studio set up, or did you move to where they were filming? No, I, I had a store I rented uh, far away from the studio, <laughs> so I wouldn't be bothered. Mm-hmm. And uh, all I had was an electrician who watched that the lights didn't blow out because sometimes when you're concentrating on animation, you you don't notice a certain light has blown out. Mm-hmm. 
so he had to watch that. Did he have a, a box to monitor all the? No, no. no we never had those glamorous things. <laughs> we had to just watch and with the meter to find out the density. And mm -hmm. when you put a new light in, you had to put filters in to bring it down to the density that when it blew out. Wow. Otherwise, you'd get a flash. Hmm. But there are still some flashes in my 16 millimeter, which I couldn't avoid. <laughs> When uh, when you did the films like the, the fighting with the skeletons, yes. and you planned a lot of that yourself, did you storyboard all that? I planned it, but I I got together with a very uh, a good Italian fencing director who knew, and we had seven stuntmen who portrayed the skeletons, and they had numbers on their backs. So uh, we all the rehearsal we did about ten or twelve rehearsals of each little cut, and. Uh, by that time, they knew, the actors knew where to shadow box, where to stop their sword by rehearsing with the stuntmen mm -hmm. who were experienced swordsmen. So uh, I, I even took lessons in swordsmanship at the Faulkner Studios on Western Avenue. Uh, no, I think it was on Sunset and, and Vermont. Uh, I, he taught Earl Flynn and a lot of the other mm -hmm. actors. Uh, I threw my hip out of joint, so I had to quit <laughs> taking that stance. But at least it taught me how to hold a sword. So you put yourself in the skeleton's place, and you have to uh, handle the sword as the best you can to look like a professional swordsman. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they filmed those, were you on the set kind of to help Always, make sure? Yes. Yeah, you had to be, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I directed all my own sequences, and uh, and I I work I wear many different hats. A lot of people think I'm just handed a script and saying, try to put this on the screen, but I, I work with the writer directly. I make these big sketches. I made eight sketches for Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, one of which is on the cover of the new book. Uh, it's also some of these sketches of my early drawings are in a portfolio that is put out by a company in Santa Monica. And this portfolio has practically reproduced the original drawings. They look like the originals. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing process. And that just so came out this year, right? That's the, the one that uh, we, we had downstairs a short while ago. Mm -hmm. And they look like originals, so it's the closest thing you can get to an original. Yeah. And uh, so those are out on the market now. I never expected them to reach the public because they were designed mainly to show the actors what they were up against. Uh, but they were also to show when we formulated the script. Our pictures were never what you, the European director would call an auteur. The European directors considered the be all and by all in a film, but Charles Schneer, the producer, and myself and the writer would formulate the story. I would bring in my eight or ten big drawings of sequences, showing the highlights, and then the writer would write them in the script. And of course, writing them in the script, he had to tie them together logically, so they became his property. Mm -hmm. But I contribute a great deal. I contribute. I worked with every writer, and I used to be very uh, uh, modest about it, and I never claimed credit for working with the script or 
directing or anything. I just claim credit for animation. So people think uh, that's the only thing I did. But I, I even have to go out and help sell a picture. So uh, I've, I wear many hats, as you can understand. Yeah, yeah. Also in films like the uh, the Flying Saucer film. Yes. I mean, it's it's always just mind-boggling to me that you everything on screen is controlled by you. Like when they're crashing into the buildings, you're animating the the bricks and, and the stone falling. I had falling. to because we couldn't afford a high-speed photography. And a big crew, yeah. you have to have an enormous crew for it. And we just couldn't afford it. So we, uh, I had to end up animating the bricks falling. And uh, sometimes, like the, the knocking over of the, the Washington Monument, all the bricks had to be put on wires. And then the wires had to be painted out because you were so close on a miniature, you'd see the wires. So every frame of film, I had to paint the wires to match the background. And uh, so they would disappear in, in the photographic process. Wow. So it took time. Today, with a computer, you can put a big cable on an actor and mat it out, and nobody would know the difference mm-hmm. if he's hanging on a cliff or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But see. it's a different world in the past. I had to do things the hard way. It's funny. I was talking to uh, the brothers Quay. Yes. They were here yesterday, and uh, I was asking about camera moves, how they said, yeah, every frame, they just move the camera. Yep. And they they talked about it being kind of the reward of it is – the fact that you're manipulating every frame and not just, you know, just panning and shooting, you know, real film. Yeah. Um, did you feel that that was part of it? F- oh yes, I had. To, my father made me a crane, so I could, could do crane shots in animation, and uh, I used that in King Midas, and I used the pan shots in Red Riding Hood. But again, it takes time, so I tried to avoid them wherever possible. Mm-hmm in our features because time was of the essence. We were always on tight budgets. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the whole picture only cost $200,000. You can't buy a costume for that today. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the most iconic invading creature yes. scenes in any movie. Well, it's going to be colorized, so I think it'll give it new life. Oh, wow. And you have a reference of the colors for the... The creature and in things my like mind, that. In the back of my mind, yeah. yes. Oh, that's great. Well, I guess we started with Clash of the Titans. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Was that the biggest film that you had ever done? Well, it was the, the one that had the most stars and the most money. The, most of the money went to the stars, of course, <laughs> who had cameo roles. But, but I mean in terms of animation and in how much work? In terms of animation, it, was, it had a lot of animation in it, yes. It took about a year and a quarter to to do all the animation and put it together in the final. But uh, it was a, a challenge. I love Greek mythology. And uh, Jason was a, uh, it was a, uh, when it was released, it wasn't a big blockbuster like they are today. But it, it got wonderful reviews both in England and America. But, uh, uh when we tackled Clash of the Titans, it was a little different. Some uh, some journalists condemned it, and uh, I think one man in the, who wrote a book about MGM called it schlock, which it certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of our best pictures, I think. But it, uh, it, they use Greek mythology now, our pictures, Clash of the Titans and Jason, 
in schools to teach Greek mythology, <laughs> even though we had to manipulate the stories and rub, sometimes we rub something of a Hercules legend and put it in a, a Perseus legend just to build a picture that an audience for an hour and a half would sit through. Mm -hmm. I guess we're um, going to wrap it up, but uh, I just want to also ask, how does it feel when you see a movie like Monsters, Inc. and the sushi bar is called Harryhausen's or in Corpse Bride, the piano, the brand <laughs> is Harryhausen? That must well, feel pretty I was good. glad to see that I'm a little above Steinway and <laughs> I was thinking of opening a sushi bar to cash in on it. <laughs> I'm not that fond of sushi, though. Oh. Okay. But uh, I'm flattered that our pictures now, over the years, they were considered B pictures because they were made on tight budgets. But they've outlasted the so-called A pictures of that period, and they've been revived by all the new techniques of DVD and, and uh, CD and whatnot. So uh, I'm grateful for that, that our pictures have more than just an entertainment value because uh, I get three generations of a family coming one ask me to sign their book and say, my father saw your film. Makes me feel like Methuselah. <laughs> but uh, it's lucky, and they said that our films made their childhood, and I'm grateful that people see them as more than just entertainment. Yeah, I, I certainly do. And I know everyone listening to this show was influenced by your work. So well, thank, so thank you. you very much. I'm, I'm proud that we're leaving a trail of, of uh, inspiration instead of desolation. And that concludes my interview with Ray Harryhausen. If you have any comments or feedback on this show or any other shows, you can go to the website at animationpodcast.com. There you can comment on any of the posts, you can send me an email or leave a voice message. And I don't have any voice messages to play for this show, so it's going to be a brief wrap-up. I do want to mention something not animation-related, but it is something that I'll be doing on September 16th. It's the Nautica Malibu Triathlon, and I'm doing a relay with a fellow animator, Marlon West. So if you'd like to sponsor me, there is a link on my site. All the information is there. It's uh, to a good cause, the Children's Hospital of LA, and it's tax-deductible. So if you hear this between now and September 16th, 2007, and you feel like donating, please go right ahead. I'd appreciate it, and so would the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. There isn't much to say for this show. Uh, I did find that on the Internet Movie Database, which is imdb.com, for a lot of movies they have the movie trailers that you can click and watch, so uh, that's where I got the audio for The Clash of the Titans at the start and a couple more that I'm going to play at the end of the show. But it's just kind of cool, so if you're looking for trailers for old movies, definitely go there and check it out. It's kind of fun. And that's going to wrap it up for this show, so thank you for listening. Be sure to send your feedback if you have any, and I'll play those uh, extra two trailers at the end of this, so enjoy those. And until the next time, thanks for tuning in. Journey to a magical time when demons and heroes battled for the golden treasures and human spoils of forgotten kingdoms. Yeah. Thrilled to the story of a legendary superhero who fights through all the torments of hell to save the woman he loves from the world's most powerful sorcerer. This is Sinbad's greatest adventure. The seventh voyage of Sinbad. 
She was once a beautiful princess. The sadistic magician shrinks her to the size of a tiny doll. And now, Sinbad must do the impossible to save her. He must destroy a legion of hell-spawned monsters on the death-shrouded island of Colossa. See the flashing death of the living skeleton. See the attack of the giant two-headed bird. See the dance of the cobra woman and feel her deadly slithering embrace. See the spectacular battle between the one-eyed cyclops and the fire-breathing dragon. The incredible magic of Dinorama recreates the enchanted, breathtaking adventure that could never be told before. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Now, from the makers of Sinbad, Columbia Pictures presents... Jason and the Argonauts. The mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Turn back, Jason. We're trapped. Sailing to the ends of the earth, battling against an incredible number of obstacles. Where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. In search of the fabulous magic golden fleece, Jason and the Argonauts, caught in the clutches of the towering bronze giant Talos, battered by treacherous falling rocks, taming vulturous harpies, facing the dreaded seven-headed Hydra, battling the merciless army of skeletons. Jason and the Argonauts, the classic story of Jason. A man who challenged the gods. Medea, a temple dancer who betrayed a kingdom for love. The Argonauts, the mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Jason and the Argonauts, a classic adventure story. Brought to the screen through the incredible special effects magic of Dinorama. Jason and the Argonauts, the search that became a legend.